Episode 2, Gravitational Waves. You're listening to SpexCast. Welcome to SpexCast, a podcast for discussing the science and technology of space exploration. I'm Phil, and joining me today we have TJ. Hello. Waving doesn't work on audio, (laughs) TJ. I will keep waving for as long as they can see me. And we also have James joining us. Hello. And today we're going to explore the topic of gravitational waves. That's so right. gravitational waves are a relatively new discovery. We've theorized that they exist for a long time. Right. And just now recently, we have proof. Exactly. February 11th. All right. So, yeah. so James, you're kind of the expert in the room. Can you a little bit. <laughs> talk about this topic? Um, yeah. Well, basically gravitational waves are essentially like ripples in space and time. And you have to think, you suspend your belief about space and just being a linear place. You can travel from one place to the other without going in different directions. It's curved. There is a curvature to space-time. And it's a very complicated matter. I don't know a, t- a ton of it about it myself, but I, d- I do know a little bit from my reading. And what I can say is that it's a very very complicated but cool topic and RIT has a lot of um, gravitational wave research uh, in our CCRG which is the Center for Computational Relativity and Gravitation. So do they do experiments there or is it mostly research and like playing with the math and looking at other people's um, data? Um, they What they do there is actually they have a huge supercomputer. I don't know if anybody's m- – many people don't go there. Um, it's a very kind of isolated part. But if you go there, um, there's a huge glass door, and beyond that glass door is like several um, walls of computers. And what they do there is they analyze data, uh, data that we just got from LIGO and um, the other – Gravitational Wave Observatory. So LIGO, that's in D.C. They have this big laser contraption. That's what's been in the press releases, right? Yes, it was. And what they do is they um, create simulations on their computer of Ah. what gravitational waves could look like. And they did this before the actual discovery. They did it theoretically. And when they discovered the gravitational waves, they were actually able to prove that what they had simulated on the computers was real. And wow. their their simulations were very, very accurate. Wow. Yeah. It was, so it was is, very cool stuff. That's as much of a feat of, Absolutely. Uh, of uh, simulation as it is. Absolutely. Yeah. Research. That's very interesting. So it is. just gravitational waves, the way I, I think about it, I know I have a little bit of astronomy background, and I'm reading Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time. So I kind of know what's going on. Space and time are, are connected, and it's like this – it's not just three dimensions. You've also got time in there, and it can be right. warped and things, and it's affected by gravity. That's right. why when light passes through the universe, a big thing like a star can actually bend, bend the light. The light follows yep. space. So gravitational waves, if you think about like light passing and curving and following space – Gravitational waves are ripples in that exactly in that space. So you have two black holes, I believe, is what was observed. They're of course, yep, a merger. A mer- so they're they're merging. 
Yeah, right. they just like come together. Or you said they spin, right? Um, yeah. So when black holes merge, they don't just collide with each other like instantly. It's not like two balls hitting each other at high velocity. Right. What happens is as they get closer to each other, they start to spin because a black hole's gravity is incredible. Yeah. I mean, beyond anything else. So what happens is the gravity actually twists the other black hole and then mm. the and vice versa. So what happens is as they get closer, they start spinning much, much faster. And the closer they get, the faster they spin until they get close enough to actually merge. So why does that ripple? Wouldn't it just make a bigger hole? Um, it would once they merge. But before they merge, um, they are distorting space-time by waves and that's what gravitational waves are from not only black hole mergers but that's a huge contender and one that we can sense from millions of light billions years away right. billions of light years away of course so it just speaks to the immensity of these black holes and how much power they have in uh, space and time so tj this is not your area of expertise by any means, you're you're a, you're a hardware technology. What do you make of all this? Oh, uh, I think it's really cool. Um, when I heard of the announcement, I heard the announcement of the announcement. <clears throat> did some reading. Actually, read the announcement. RIT had a little press conference here right. for our contributions. Uh, I really like physics, and I, I'm totally intrigued, right, about the nature of gravitational waves. But uh, the part that I can, you know, really wrap my head around is the actual uh, setup of the detector. Which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, so, do you, we, know how, do you know about the detector? I was about to ask. Yeah, so I, I read yeah. about uh, LIGO, and it's a really interesting uh, setup. It's based on like some high school physics principles, really. So basically, you have a laser that shoots a beam down a long tube, right? And that laser is bounced off and then sent through a prism down another tube and then bounced off again. So theoretically, and ideally, you have two beams of light recombining. And they're, they're out of phase with each other. Yeah, at 90 degrees. And so if they're 90 degrees out of phase, both of those fields would cancel each other out, and you would detect no field. Yeah, because so yeah, when you superimpose two waves, you add them together, and mm -hmm. if one's going up while the other's going down at exactly the same amplitude, it's just zero. Right. So if there's any disturbance, it... You see the laser, and that's right. that's a positive detection. Yep. But what about like an earthquake or something like a big truck driving down the road? Is do they detect that too? So yeah. So with LIGO, when they first built the one, I think in Kansas, um, Kentucky, someplace Hanover, else. I believe. Someplace that's Virginia, in, right? Uh, Virginia, I think yes. so. There's two. Maryland, there? maybe. Yeah, there are I two. There's the there's one near DC, and there's one I think someplace in the south. Anyways, uh, they had a very big issue where they built this massive, because it's, you know, several thousand feet long uh, yep. hallways, right, underground. And they had this issue with earthquakes and, you know, big trucks driving around and other physical interactions. And so they had to build dampening systems into it to cancel those out, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're talking about even the best case, like, minuscule measurements, absolutely minuscule. And so it's absolutely critical to have as big as a detector as possible to get that big, uh, change right. and as sensitive detectors as possible. And that leads to, you know, noise. Yeah, so something I kind of want to ask you, James, is when you have a big laser that they're canceling each other out, if there's any disturbance, it moves. But how would a ripple in space, like a warping of space-time 
cause a detection? Like, well, the system um, that we've been talking about, the lasers, is actually called an inferometer, and it uh, measures. Cool. Yeah, right. <laughs> it uh, it measures um, changes in distance, very, 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 very minute changes in distance, right. which the gravitational waves make. And when this happens, as you said, you can observe the laser, and that's when they know they've seen it. But as you guys have been talking about, noise from the Earth is very loud compared to what's happening millions of light, billions of light years away. Right. So we have to, we've had to um, continuously uh, increase the dampening system on the LIGO Center um, and the other. And it's taken many, many years. I believe some somewhere around 40 to 50 years to get it to this sensitivity um, to be able to pick up the gravitational waves. And of course, we needed the gravitational waves just yeah. to uh, be in our proximity. And it's a very cool instrument, and they've used it for several other uh, discoveries too. So on a much smaller scale, on a much more uh, practical, apl appliable scale to us, is that the same uh, laser interferometer setup is what makes the principle of laser ring gyroscopes. And when in our you know day-to-day -day business of designing satellites, <clears throat> gyroscopes and rotation detection are very important. Rotation detection? Yes. And so with the LIGO, they're looking for a gravitational wave passing through the detector, right. causing the aspect of the laser to change. Right. With a laser gyroscope, rotating the entire device through space is what causes the change. And so laser ring gyroscopes are super precise and they're used for a lot of uh, more expensive spacecraft that need that precision. So the precision technology developed with the infrarometer right. is applied, it can be applied to the... To yeah, the, the same physical principle that LIGO uses uh, okay. for gravitational waves, we use for our gyroscopes. Cool. Very cool. So this discovery was just recently made or announced, right? Right. Two questions here. One is, has the data been a, measured a long time ago? We just now proved that it's from gravitational wave. And second, has it taken so long since they were theorized because the technology wasn't developed and because the event hasn't happened? Like, is that what's contributing to it taking so long? Well, actually, both are definitely contributing. Um, the inferometer has been around for, I believe, over 100 years. I mean, um, Albert Einstein used it um, 1905, 19, early, early 1900s, and it's been uh, continuously being advanced in its technology, and that's been one major um, assist assistant for... Uh, observing very small changes in space and time that we can't, we can't observe with our naked eye. And absolutely the um, technology is needed to advance a lot in the past hundred years. And it has, absolutely. The past 40 years, I believe we've been advancing very, very quickly. And um, to your first question, uh, the data I believe was discovered in September and they've been analyzing it to make sure it wasn't just some noise, right. maybe from a supernova, right. or maybe from just a 
a truck on the other side of the earth. You know, it's yeah. very, it's such an incredibly sensitive instrument that it could be picking up something else. And now um, finally proven that, hey, this isn't a fluke. This isn't noise. This is the real deal. Right. And so yeah. Now they're announcing. Now they announced it. Right. Uh -huh. And I believe they pro they probably figured it out February 10th. Got very excited. <laughs> uh, released it on the 11th. Right. Yeah. It's really interesting uh, using this inferometer technology and the applications it's had over time. Yeah. Because the main principle is being able to measure very, very small changes. In, in distance. In distance. And so uh, something I was reading a while ago is that uh, how did we prove the speed of light? Right? We all mm -hmm. know that's the universal constant. Right that applies to everything. Right. Um, however, <clears throat> going back to light as a wave, right? As humans, we deal with waves all the time. This podcast is all about, you know, sound waves. Right. And that involves waves that can propagate through matter, yeah. through medium. And so when they were looking at the behavior of light, they're like, light behaves a lot like a wave. However, in outer space, there doesn't appear to be a medium for them to yeah. go through. And so they propose, well, there has to be a medium. Maybe it's something we can't find, right? And so there's this idea of this ether. And so that was the leading um, yeah. theory for how light waves propagated. So there's something called the Michelson-Morley experiment, which is basically what LIGO is on a much smaller scale. So if you are moving around the, the surface of the Earth, right? The Earth is turning, you're turning. If you shot a laser at something and came back, it would inherit the speed of the Earth and come back, right? If you shot a laser perpendicular to the turning of the Earth, it would move at the same speed it originated at and come back. So the theorem, the hypothesis, was that the laser going with the velocity of the Earth should arrive faster and you get, an, you get a reading on your inferometer. However, because of relativity, both beams of light come back at the same time and right. interfere. So there was no measurement. So this exact same technology is what proved the speed of light, the speed of light and uh, general relativity, I believe. No matter how space-time is warped or curved, the speed of light moves at the speed of light, no faster, no slower. And so even though it's you're shooting it from the Earth moving through the solar system rotating, moving through the galaxy, the speed of light shoots out at the speed of light and comes back. And right. That's why the measurement. Yes. Oh, well, simply. Uh, was that a pun? <laughs> this was. Okay. Yeah, super interesting. Cool applications. And it's been around for a while, but. Long time. So this basically is another form of proof for relativity, for it Einstein's is. theorems. So yeah. was there any doubt that, that they were explaining the universe as it? as it was? Or is this just, we were 99% sure, and now we're 99.999% sure? Is that is that how it was, you know? Well, when Einstein published all of his um, documents, his papers, it was in within one year, 1905. It's uh, referred to as his miracle year. And uh, after those documents were released, um, there was a huge commotion because they were absolutely incredible. I mean, they changed the way physics worked because Newtonian physics doesn't apply to things going close to the speed of light because it falls apart. Right. Because in Newtonian physics, you can go beyond the speed of light 
no problem. In Einsteinian physics, you can't get, I mean, humans cannot even get close. It would be nearly impossible because materials would just fall apart because of his very famous equation that everybody knows, E equals mc squared, which is the energy mass equivalent. And that says that if you're approaching the speed of light, your mass and energy increases so much that the amount of energy you need to keep going would it would be unachievable. So yeah, what happens is like you have this exponential curve and you can constantly increase to like 0.9c, 0.99c, 0.999c, but you can never reach right c. So you asymptotically approach c, but your energy required to do so asymptotically approaches infinity. Yeah. And you know, as much as gotcha. we like to talk about infinite energy, you can't have infinite energy. Exactly. Moving away from the whole math thing that I don't entirely understand <laughs> yeah. beyond this. I don't think anyone understands entirely. <laughs> yeah. I don't think anyone understands. <laughs> what does the proof of gravitational waves and the ability to detect them mean for the future of space exploration research, astronomy research, and what discoveries do you think could be made or observations that we couldn't do before we knew that this was possible? Well, I do know that once the discovery was announced, um, a whole new type of physics opened up called gravitational wave astronomy. And that is a whole new field indulging into something that I have no experience with. It's very, very complicated stuff. Um, So that's basically, rather than using telescopes and any type of telescope where you're observing light. Right. But, and for astronomy... But gravitational wave astronomy would be observing gravitational waves and right. not, not light. It's just yeah. a different way of looking at things that are there. It could reveal more about the Big Bang uh, because the way we have uh, learned so much about it is through the cosmic background radiation and reading it um, in some way. And I believe in my reading, it says that if we could observe gravitational waves from the Big Bang, we would be able to see new things that we w- weren't weren't able to see before so that that could be a whole new explosion of information i mean that has unlimited ideas coming out of it there's a lot of potential in this new uh, gravitational wave astronomy because you have a lot of challenges in regular astronomy looking into the past where the farther away things are, the more back in time they are. You have something called the inverse square law, where that energy from whatever event in the past gets spread out over such a massive dif- distance that it starts to blend in into that cosmic background radiation. It gets blocked by cosmic dust. Right. It gets overshadowed by near stars. So if you want to be able to see things that are at the edge of the universe, the edge of the observable universe, we need a new way of detection with gravitational waves because they're such strong events, right? We have two black holes colliding into each other, creating these massive waves. We can, when we read them, they're very, very faint, but they're not uh, disturbed like a lot of the light we get. So like the way we look into the past is because a certain photon would be created long ago and has traveled all the way to us and right. took that much time to get to us and that's how we can observe the past. Would it be able to help us detect dark matter too? It might. That's a very uh, big possibility. Um, dark matter is a very uh, ambiguous idea. You know, It's a very difficult idea as well. Um, 
it hasn't been directly observed. It's been theorized. People have used it um, in experiments. Isn't dark matter just dust and, and remnants of, like, particles? Like in- It's hard to say because dark matter supposedly makes up about 70% of the universe. Right. Because we can see about, I believe, about about 38, approximately 30, 30% of the universe. And that does not account for all the matter in the universe. And that's what we think dark matter is, the, the matter that we can't see. So we, we observe all the effects of matter that should be there, but right. we can't, when we look that direction, we don't see anything. Exactly. It's dark. Right? So it's not dark in the sense that doesn't produce or reflect light that we can observe. Mm-hmm. It's just matter, it's mass and matter that we can detect its interactions but we can't detect its presence. We can't observe it. Right? It's not something you can shine light on and get information back. So how could a gravitational wave help us detect that? Is that something that's only being theorized? The main principle, right, is it has mass and it interacts with other things via gravity. So a gravitational wave, when it interacts with all things that have mass, it would then give us some information about the dark matter. So when a gravitational wave goes through space and... There's a star in the way, for example. The, does the gravitational field of the star dis, like distort the gravitational wave? Um, it depends on the magnitude of the wave. If it's a very large magnitude, it, it could distort it, but it might not um, distort it enough to be measured. But if it's coming from billions of light years away, then... Yes, I, I believe it could get so, distorted by another gravitational field. My question is, can we look at the nature of the wave that we're observing and extract data from the nature of the wave, not just co- correlating it with things that we think are happening? Well, I mean, that's not something that we know, right? I mean, none of us are experts in this field. None of us are even you know, PhDs in this field. So that's something that's going to take a lot of... Uh, testing a lot of like now that they know that one signal is from a gravitational wave then they can go out and look at different signals and then compare those signals and see what's different about them what might have caused each of them and then that's when we can actually get useful data out of it but we've just seen our first one yeah yeah now i can see like after talking about it with you guys i can see why people are so excited yeah um, absolutely it's a huge huge discovery yeah I've heard I've heard people calling it the discovery of the century. It's only t- 2016, <laughs> but I mean, so far, so far, it's, I mean, Einstein predicted this over a hundred years ago with like technology that we wouldn't be able to see them with at all. So he had to theorize them. He had to use equations. He couldn't see them. He couldn't measure them. He couldn't do anything with them except um, theorize them in equations. And the fact that he was able to do that is just unbelievable. I mean, it just adds to his genius, even though he's already... Uh, the, the thing about Einstein, this is, a per, this is a personal aside, the thing about Einstein is that he looked at the way the universe is and described it with mathematics. Right. And haven't read the entirety of his papers, but I'm not entirely, entirely sure that he, like, he, there's no chapter, gravitational waves, this is what they're going to look like. It was more like... Yeah. He described the universe as as he, best he could with equations. Right. And gravitational waves are something 
that would happen if, like, you took his equations and you said, okay, what if I have two black holes that come together? That's what would happen, and it was kind of like a byproduct out of it. So the fact that this weird byproduct that is mind-boggling just supports these elegant equations that he just used to describe what he could observe. And mm-hmm. I, like, personally, this is, it's kind of inspirational. Because it is. Einstein was a smart guy, but he was also really creative in, in thinking in ways that other people might not. It's really interesting. I mean, Einstein is kind of held up as the prototypical genius type, right? But there's so many different people that are geniuses in their one realm. And there's people who aren't even geniuses in their realm, but have such a strong impact, right? Like, look at Henry Ford. Like, the course of American history, the course of world history, was changed by the things he did, right? If you look at other prominent figures like Andrew Carnegie, right? What he, his approach and his ideas had a huge effect on the way everyone lived. Right. Like, he's not a physical genius, Right. But he came up with these ideas and implemented those ideas. Right. And that's really impressive. That's kind of my, my point. Like we, everybody holds Einstein up on a, such a high pedestal. I mean, right. he, he deserves it, in my opinion. But he's not any different, really. I mean, Henry Ford and, and people like that are just thinking of things differently. And if anybody thinks of things differently, they can have a potentially a huge impact on the course of humanity or our understanding of the universe. So I would say there's a, a pretty distinct difference between Henry Ford and um, course, Albert Einstein. Of course. <laughs> Just in the, in the way that their um, minds work. Henry Ford was able to create, make a concept in his mind and bring it to life. Whereas Einstein had a, an incredibly difficult concept in his mind. And instead of, he couldn't uh, make it into something physical. He had to make it into mathematical equations, which in its own way is genius making something that just moves around in space and being able to formulate a equation that would perfectly describe how it how it moves it's i mean it's just incredible i think the key similarity is that both individuals were able to perceive something big right right when you you've got billions of people on this planet thinking millions of ideas you have just a few people that manage to come up with these ideas, these out of the what we call out of the box ideas. Mm-hmm. Now, is that because they're super super smart? We're not. I'm not saying Albert Einstein's not an incredibly smart individual, but it's not. It's it's not. I don't think it's just he's super smart. I don't think it's because of their you know inherent intelligence. There's something about these people that gives them the ability to you know, come up with a different understanding of the universe. Or in Henry Ford's case, come up with a different understanding of how to build things. That's very impressive. Right. I'm just going to go back to this thought one time. Drive my my point home. It's not that there's anything different about people like that. It's all in us, one way or another, in my opinion. And if you just, like, tap into it, you can have a great effect as well. True. I believe in you, TJ. True. I believe in you. Thank you, Phil. (laughs) (laughs) But it's just interesting because if we had a... There's books that talk about this, right? If we have a world 
of Albert Einstein's. Is that the ideal world? Or is it, we had a world of Elon Musk's or a world of Nikola Tesla's. Is that better than the world we have now? Where we have hey guys, just jumping in here. This is Phil. Yeah. Um, just wanted to say that the rest of this conversation kind of went off on a tangent. We ended up talking about Aldous Huxley's novel, Brave New World, and how culture and science interact. It really gets pretty interesting, but it's way off topic. So look out for episode 2B, Brave New World. Uh, that will be released shortly after this one. So here's a clip from the end of that conversation, and thanks for listening. I want to mention uh, just one thing that uh, my father told me um, over intercession break, which really stuck with me. Um, everything we know is well. Let me let me rephrase that. He said um, we don't know things. What we know is what isn't possible. We can prove what can't happen, but we don't exactly. We can't exactly prove what is it's a very it was a very um complicated thought and as a side bar to that we only know what we can experiment really we can only we only know right. what we observe and what we right. observe it's like gravitational waves we have another thing to observe this is a it was a really cool discussion actually on gravitational waves yeah and our lord and savior <laughs> henry ford <laughs> so look out for our discussion on brave new world Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a week or two with another discussion on space exploration, science, and technology. If you'd like to share your thoughts on gravitational waves, maybe correct some of our mistakes if we made any, or if you have any requests for other discussion topics, please send an email to specscast at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible by RIT Specs, a space exploration student faculty research organization at the Rochester Institute of Technology. Music credit, Kevin Hardnell. Hardnell.